Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher even if they don't. Today is April the 16th, 2020, this episode 2641 of the Survival Podcast, and this is a Just Jack show for you guys, so we're going to take a, a subject as we do often and break it down. And we're going to be talking about it in the context of the current pandemic, but it's really a show that's far more forward-looking. We're going to talk about bug-out locations today. And the reason we're going to talk about this is Dorothy and I, you know, we're married for a long time, so we tend to spend time talking to each other a lot. And we were talking recently about the fact that when we moved here from Arkansas, we gave up that property. We kept that property for, God, I think it was like six or seven years as a bug-out location. And then we actually moved there permanently and got rid of our primary residence, and we lived there for a couple of years, and it just was very difficult for her to be so far away from her family. And at the time as well, her father was really slipping into some problems with old age and dementia. And so it made it very difficult for us to stay there. We made a decision to move here. We really upgraded our property to a much better property. But we now live in the urban-rural fringe. There's massive neighborhoods just a few miles down the road from me, 15, 20 minutes from here, depending on traffic, is downtown Fort Worth. Yet it's remote and rural as you can be in this situation. But it's you, many of you have been here. It's not a remote property by any means. And I just started thinking about walking around on my property. If we still own the Arkansas property, would I right now go up there Instead of stay here? And the answer was no. Hell no. In fact, it would be, probably be really difficult for me to justify going up there for like a getaway or anything during this time. It would be much harder to get somebody to keep an eye on my livestock and stuff like that. And just the reality is I'm set up better here. As you normally would be between a bug out location and a primary residence, you're going to put the majority of your resources for day to day life and, you know, quote unquote peacetime. You're going to put all of those resources into where you live because you live there. And we have a limit to how much money we can spend and how much stuff we can have. And also, a bug out location is going to be what you have in addition to what you have every day. But then I started thinking. What if the calculus was different here? I mean, let me just put it to this way. Um, we have a global disaster right now, and it's a real one, not a conjured up one in a prepper fiction book. And I want to, again, looking at today is how that changed the concept of a bug out location. And the reality, though, is despite what the TV tries to scare you, with the odds right now you're going to die of COVID are dramatically low, really low. Like even if you actually get it in the first place, at 2% is, is about the maximum number that you can use as to whether or not you're going to end up dying from it. And it's really much lower if you maintain good, healthy life habits, if you watch your weight. Uh, there's a report out from New York right now that the number one comorbidity, and I told you this months ago, was being obese. Other than age, the number one factor in people ending up having a really bad time and or dying of COVID is being really, really heavy. 
more if you do have an underlying condition. Right now, it's actually pretty easy to bug in almost anywhere and self-isolate to where you're probably not going to get sick if you do all things right. Uh, you can get food delivered, and based on how COVID spreads, you can reduce the risk of infection by how you handle those deliveries to very, very low as a possibility. But as preppers must do, what happens when we say, what if? And those are the two magic words for preppers. Now, we can overdo what if. I've said this before. I used to have a, a wood shop teacher in high school, and we were debating the 308 versus the 3006. And, of course, since I could eke out a couple hundred feet per second in the 3006 when I was 16 years old, I knew that Mr. Fox was wrong. The 3006 was a much better round than the 308, much better as though it actually mattered, as though death came in degrees, as though it really mattered in the field at all. He was a fan of the 308 in short action, and I liked the 306 because it was faster. And I was saying, well, what if this and what if that? And one day he pulled me aside to make sure that he didn't get himself in trouble by saying this. He was a real straight shooter, and he said, Spirica, let me tell you this. If your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. And there's a place for that. There's still a place for what if, because the entire concept of preparedness is contingent upon our ability as humans to do something that no other life form that we know of does, to ask that question. Squirrels may store nuts, ants may put food in the ground, etc., but it's hardwired into them. It's a behavior. They don't plan for contingencies. They plan for normalcy. See, if you're a squirrel, the fact that winter will come and you better have some nuts stored is normal. If you're an ant, the fact that you'll have to go in your hole in the ground and wait out winter is normal. We ask what if for the, the aberration of normal, for something that comes up differently. So, what if this pandemic had a death rate of 15% and a real death rate of 15%? Not the way some people are doing mental gymnastics trying to make the number bigger than it is because they want to be scared. I'm just saying, like, 100 people get it, 15 people die. If that's the case, you probably also have a pandemic where about 15 out of those hundreds have a really, really hard time. And that death rate probably climbs over time because we are, not we might, we are going to overload the hospitals with that type of a death rate. What if that death came a lot faster than it does even for the people that die of COVID? What if it was something that, you know, you get it, there's a five, six-day gestation period where you're shedding it and you're spreading it like this, but then once you came down ill, a lot, you know, 15, 20, 25% of people were dead within a couple of days, no matter what you did. Um, hmm. Maybe it would be different. Right now, I sit, as I said, in my property just north of, north of Fort Worth, There's been just a hair over 900 cases of COVID, not in Fort Worth, but in my county. Now, I believe that our X factor, the number of cases that we have from asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic, people we're not testing and confirming, is somewhere between 5 to 10X minimum. So that means we've had 4,000 to 10,000 cases in Tarrant County, depending on what that X factor is. And this has all resulted in a whopping 29 deaths. So you take my X factor at four to 10,000, or you take the official number of 929 deaths, and my county has a population of over 2 million people. So given my setup here, why the hell would I bug out? I have a property that's easy to defend. I can help my son and his family while I'm here. I have neighbors who will look out for one another and have agreed to do so. And my odds of dying 
by slipping in the shower and breaking my neck are literally higher than my odds of dying from COVID. Frankly, it's probably more likely I'll die in the shower, at least hurt myself in the shower, uh, than it is that I'll even get COVID. I have a friend actually threw his back out in the shower because he sneezed the wrong way and slipped. So they're, 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 the life comes with some dangers built into it. Uh, there's probably less people than, than, than normal dying right now just because less people are driving. So the total death rate in the United States is actually probably down right now. Between uh, reduction in medical errors because all the elective stuff's not going on and people not driving, there's probably less, not more people dying right now. But if 15% of people were dying and the spread was worse, if Tarrant County looks something like New York City does right now and we had people dropping like flies around here, would I head for the hills if I had a place to go? Yeah, I damn sure might. If that were the case, what would I have needed to set up in those hills to make bugging out make sense? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do, let's talk a little bit about the concept of being saved. Because right now I think that one of the reasons we're making some really bad decisions and we're yelling and screaming at each other instead of demanding accountability from the people that have the power, which are the people in government, is fear. And we're looking for someone to save us. So we're looking, whoever has the most power, we expect to be the one to save us. Somebody said something about saving people. From a religious standpoint, it's probably not the person you're thinking of. This, this is from Buddha. This is what Buddha said about being saved. He said, no one saves us but ourselves. No one can, and no one may. We ourselves must walk the path. And that's the reality here, that preparedness is the, it, it was the solution to this problem. Now, that sucks for you if you weren't prepared. And I don't think any of us, even those of us that are well prepared and doing just fine, feel like we were as prepared as we should be. For many preppers, this is the biggest gut check we've ever had. And we're not out of it yet. I do think everything gets better from here. I think everything looks worse over the next week or two, but everything actually gets better from here. And, and, and very, very rapidly, by the way. Very, very rapidly. But w w the, the consequences of this will continue after the virus is gone. We just shut down the global economy of the Western world for about 40 to 60 days. This is going to take a lot of work, and there's going to be a lot of misery and unwinding, and we're not going to be able to just go back to the way things were instantly. We're going to have to ramp back up both from a practical standpoint and from uh, controlling the spread standpoint. If you... If we just go back to everybody just going back to nightclubs and swap and spit on the dance floor with somebody they just met, we can have a resurgence of this. If we do this with some intelligence, I think we're going to find that the social distancing helped, but this total lockdown probably did more harm than good in the grand scheme of things. And it really didn't have that big of an impact on the total spread of the illness. I know that's hard for you to believe, but I'll tell you, I think it's really the case. As we get into this today, I want to start out with some humor. This was something somebody posted as a comment uh, on one of my posts today on Facebook. And uh, I then stole the post, and I did try to give credit, but the person that posted it, they have their settings or something, so that when I tried to tag them to give them credit, it didn't show up. So I just posted it on my timeline and admitted that it was stolen. And it's, uh, it's supposedly... An anonymous post from a UPS delivery driver. It probably was not written by a UPS delivery driver, but it is funny. 
And um, it's funny because as bad as this is, it's not as bad as what we're going to look at potential to be today. And just I thought that would be good uh, to set the framework and to give us something to laugh at. Laughing is really important. Uh, but here's what uh, I said about it. I said, apparently I am a Steve, and I married my Mary about 20 years ago. And it says, again, from anonymous UPS delivery driver, five types of customers since the Rona. Steve, he's been waiting for this moment his whole life. He has been drinking Boilermaker since 10 a.m. in his recliner, and his AR is in with arm's reach. He has six months of provisions in his basement, a bug-out bag, bag new west buried in the woods. Steve demands a handshake as I give him his package. He's sizing me up as I deliver his ammo. Steve will survive this, and he will kill you if he needs to. Brad... He is standing at the window wearing skinny jeans and a Patagonia t-shirt. He's mad because there were no organic tomatoes at Whole Foods today. He points at the ground where he has taped a six-foot no-go zone line from his porch. I leave his case of Fuji water, organic granola bites, and his new Bernie Bro hat at the tape. Brad will not survive. Steve will probably eat him. Nancy, she has sprayed everything with thieves' oil. Bought all the Clorox wipes, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, meat, and bread from the local grocery chain. She has quarantined her kids and sprays them with a mixture of thieves, lavender, and mint oil daily. She has posted every link known to man about the Rona on her social media. She will spray you if you break the six-foot rule. I will leave her yet another case of toilet paper. She will last longer than Brad, but not longer than Steve. Karen, everybody's favorite, Karen. Karen has called everybody to read them the latest news on the Rona. She has asked for the manager at Food Lion, Walmart, Publix, McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, and Vaughn's all before noon, demanding more toilet paper. Karen's kids are currently faking having the Rona to avoid her. I'm delivering Hello Kitchen to her. Karen will not survive longer than Brad. Mary. Mary is sitting in the swing watching her kids have a balloon fight in the front yard, and she's on her fourth glass of wine. She went to the store and bought two cases of Pop-Tarts, six boxes of cereal, eight bags of pizza rolls, and a six-pack roll of toilet paper. There's a playlist of Bob Marley, Pink Floyd, and Post Malone playing in the background. I'm bringing her her second shipment of 15 bottles of wine in three days. Mary will survive and Mary Steve. Together they will repopulate the earth. May God have mercy on us all. I think there is some humor and a little bit of truth built into that, which is, you know, it's funny because it's true in the words of many people, but I think most famously recently would have been Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. Um, and I do, I do think I married my Mary. I could change a few things in there. We don't listen to Post Malone, and she did not buy a bunch of Pop-Tarts. She did buy a bunch of pop-up Eggo waffles for our granddaughter, though, and we don't watch the kids play. We watch the grandkids play, and... We don't drink quite that much, and I don't have my first Boilermaker at 10 a.m., but, you know, I think we're going through it exactly the way to describe Steve and Mary. So I guess I'm Steve and Mary my Mary years ago. Very happy with that. But I want to start out with the real lesson, and that's why we're talking about bug-out locations today on, on the spread of COVID. It's really all about population density. That's why bug-out locations are a reasonable solution to this problem. Because, you know, everybody thinks the reason that there is so much COVID in New York City is because they're an international travel hub. Well, Seattle's an international travel hub from Asia. It's kind of the gateway from Asia. And they had a lot less. And it started a lot earlier there. 
I know they locked down sooner, but when you look at the numbers of when the lockdown started versus what was being seen, they're not that far off. And, ironically, even though one started earlier and one locked down earlier, they're both kind of about the same point in what we call the curve. As I've pointed out earlier this week, that pattern really has duplicated itself almost everywhere in the country And instead of being off by the three to five to six weeks that it should be in different geographic locations, that real curve is off by about five days in the sliding scale. So we have to ask ourselves, why? You know, I mentioned Dallas-Fort Worth. Dallas-Fort Worth is a major inbound location to international traffic, both directly and connecting through. Dallas-Fort Worth is a massive, massive place. The population of Dallas-Fort Worth is about 7.2 million people. That's in about two counties. Maybe it's three. I don't know exactly where they draw the line. I think it's two main counties and some pieces of a couple other ones, so really three counties of area. 7.2 million people. But we have a total square mileage of almost 10,000 square miles for those 7 million people. In New York City, they have 8.6 million people. With a population that, until they locked it down and kept people out, would swell easily to 16 million plus a day, all in 302 square miles. I didn't do the math on Seattle, but Seattle is definitely more population dense than Dallas-Fort Worth, King County is, but it's nowhere near the population density of New York City. And if you look throughout the country, the higher the population density the more significant percentage of the population has tested positive for COVID. And again, remember, whatever that number is, it's small compared to the whole. It's an iceberg. You're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, and we don't know how big the part under the water is, the denominator. We're now estimating the numerator. Right? That's why they're trying to scare you. They, they, New York reclassified 4,000 deaths that were not COVID deaths as COVID deaths yesterday. They weren't COVID deaths, now they are. Maybe it's because they're getting paid a whole shitload of money for every single person that had COVID. Just saying. There could be a there could be an incentive there. Maybe it's because it makes their agenda a little bit uh, easier to push. Maybe it justifies how much oppression that they've had a little bit better. There's a lot of reasons somebody might want to pad that number, but we're we're, we're claiming. The estimated number of cases as valid, and we're estimating the numerator, which we should really be able to know. I mean, we can test somebody once they die and say, yes, they did or did not have COVID. Now, if they died of terminal cancer and had COVID, uh, we can debate whether that's really a COVID death or not. But, again, I'm back to the real lesson, though, is still population density. When you factor the fudge factors in, the estimates, et cetera, it's still the case. Lots of people, higher percentage of people infected. Plain and simple. And again, the lockdowns were only as effective as the population allowed for. So we have a place like Dallas-Fort Worth with, it's really a pittance of cases. And it's probably only half of them that are being labeled as community spread, meaning almost half of the cases in Tarrant County came from somewhere else. Now that doesn't mean that, oh, hey, look at us, yay. What that means is, Right now, if you're really afraid of this, and you have a bug-out location in a remote area, and you don't get this before you go there, and you go there and you can stay there, your odds of getting this are infinitesimally low. 
That does not only apply to COVID. That's how all infectious diseases work. If not, then social distancing, etc., wouldn't do anything. It's not, no matter how many, it's airborne! It's not airborne the way that you think you mean it when you say it. If I spit on you, I guess it was airborne for a while. I guess if I sneeze really hard and I amateurize my sneeze, it can float around for a little while. But it's not just, it's not like it's like traveling around like the stork that delivered babies in cartoons when you were kids in the 70s looking for you. If you head up to your little place in the mountains or out in the hills and you stay there, there's absolutely no reason for you to get COVID. And the stuff that you have delivered or shipped in, you know, if you, if you go out and pick that up with a mask on and gloves and set it down somewhere and leave it for three days before you touch it or spray it down with sanitizer or something like that, your odds of getting it, if you'll be a, a, a what was it, a Brad in the story, are, are almost zero. And, If you have a place with a high population density, even if you shelter in place, you have a reasonable expectation, if something's especially more contagious than COVID, that you're going to get it. So in this case, most people bugged in. Very few people that I know of now have an audience of preppers. I would have guessed that the percentage of my audience that possesses the potential to bug out is a lot higher than the percentage of the total number of people in the United States that have that. Like, it's not a representative share. Like, there are way more people that are preppers that have bug-out locations than don't. Though there's a lot of people that do have bug-out locations that they don't think of that way, hunting cabins and such as well. And if you live in Michigan, I guess you're not supposed to go there. I bet you anybody that wants to go is going and screw Gretchen is the way that they're looking at it. Good on y'all people that protested in Michigan yesterday. I don't know if anybody's going to care, but good on you. Um, but most people bugged in. And for most people in this situation, bugging in was the right decision. That said, if I lived in New York City, the second that this shit started to ramp up, I would have gotten out of there if I had any way I could do it. If without destroying my life, I could leave, I would have left. Why? Population density. So that brings us to what makes a good bug out location, not just in general. We've done tons of shows on this over the 12 years I've been doing this. But in, in regards to the COVID pandemic, or something far worse like it. Number one, low population density. That I mean, that's just something that just makes abundant sense. If you're bugging out to a place that has an equal population density, unless it just hasn't geographically gotten there yet, you probably haven't accomplished very much. Again, if you look at the number of cases throughout the country... The total number of people that have this relative to the whole, it's less about total population and more about how many people are in how small of an area. So we want a low population density. We also want some significant natural resources, which as we go through some of the other side of this will become abundantly clear as to why. We want the ability to sustain ourselves at least a little bit off of nature itself whether that be that there's a, a wooded property with a lot of deadfall on it so that even if we don't have a giant uh, stack of firewood ready to go, there's fuel for heat and cooking, or it be that we can hunt or fish or something like that, because everything that we have like that in a place like this reduces the amount of stuff that we have to store, and it reduces the amount of stuff we have to bring with us, and it reduces the amount that we have to acquire from outside and up our contacts 
from deliveries or going out and provisioning at a local store or something like that. Because I don't know that you would really want to do this in a place that's so remote that like going to a local store isn't really an option. I really don't know that you would want to do that. I would. Low population density, significant natural resources. Next, you want built-in security with enhancements. And what I mean by that is some locations are remote, but the remoteness doesn't really make them secure. They're remote enough that once your location is observed by local two-legged rats, if there's no neighbors in line of sight, if they're, you know, if it's kind of set up to the point where I can really get in there and get out of there. And I'm a scumbag and I've watched and I saw Tommy and Tommy showed up at his bug out location right on schedule to check on everything about the 12th of the month, and he stayed over the weekend, and he left. And the last time I saw him show up and leave, he didn't come back for 60 days. Not only I go in there and steal everything, I'd probably go in there and hang out for about 30 days while I'm slowly unloading and unassing all of Tommy's shit. Now, there's other locations that, boy, it's hard to even figure out when somebody's there when there's not somebody there. There are neighbors that are line of sight. Um... And maybe you have some sort of monitoring equipment put in place. Uh, you have fencing and gates, and you make accessibility something difficult I, and, and maybe even dangerous and possibly vehicle disabling for people that shouldn't be there. So that's enhancements. And, and good neighbors, I have broke out as a separate line item, but really they are part of a security enhancement. One of the things I loved about our place in Arkansas, before we even bought it, I went and talked to the neighbors. And I said, these are my kinds of people. These are people that kind of eyeball what's going on and what have you. We went up there with a real estate agent and all. They knew the place was being sold. But I kind of went back up there after I had been there with the agent. And there was kind of like eyeballs on me like, well, what are you doing here? In a friendly, but, you know, uh, somewhat assertive sort of way. In fact, even after we were living, well, we didn't, weren't living there. We had the place remotely. I went up there one time. I had a visitor with me, and my, me and my wife and, and this visitor were walking up the hill, and it had been a while since we had seen the, the neighbors, especially their kids, and their young man was about 14 at the time, and he was on a four-wheeler, and he hadn't seen me for a couple of years, and you know, when you're 14, 12 to 14 is a lot longer than, let's say, 24 to 26 in your head, and things change for you and what you remember and whatever, and uh, well, he drove up to us, and he was like, Hey, can I help y'all? And I started talking because, oh, you're Jack. That's right, Mr. Spirico. I'm sorry. I and he was apologetic that he was a little bit aggressive. And I was like, no, you should be proud of yourself. Good neighbors, especially neighbors who are line of sight. So I just said you wanted low population density. Now I'm saying you want neighbors. Well, we had up on that road five homes. And if we were in a social distancing mode, we could have just you know, not spent a lot. And we didn't actually ever really spend a lot of time with each other. We just were friendly to each other, and we'd hang out and talk once in a while. We all had our own place. We were all there for the same reasons. We liked it that way. And that is a much more secure property, especially if you're not going to be there, than it is if you are just out in the middle of the sticks with no one else. If, you, if you're not going to have line-of-sight neighbors, it's almost imperative, one, that you either make your property almost impossible to, ex to be accessible with a vehicle without knowing how to do it, Uh, with as much security as you can, and that's difficult in a day and age where everybody has a four-wheeler and a motorcycle. Um, and the other option is that you live there. And that's another, we're not talking about that today, but this is also a pretty good case for 
living in a remote off-grid property where you're well-stocked and well-prepared. Because the person that's doing that right now is not real worried about this. They're just like, well, I'll go out in, I don't know, June. I'm good. See you later. Bye. You know, they're like Brad, except the UPS guy doesn't ever show up. I mean, that's, 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 or Steve. I guess it's Steve, right? Steve and the UPS driver. Um, the next thing you need, though, is comfortable conditions. I've talked about the concept of having like a bug out location and using an RV or something like that. And I think that that's okay, but it then needs to be a transitional plan. I really think for your bug out location to be effective to a place that you might go and live for six months, you need a house. You, it might be a cabin. It might be a, a underground earth shelter home. So there's another way you could do security enhancement. Like if you had a, a home that was really basically sort of like a bunker, but more of like a Mike Ayler style in-ground house. And it's Mike Ayler is O-H-L-E-R, something like that. I'll look up his book and put it in the show notes for you guys today. Um, but if you had something like that, man, you, you, you it's kind of like if you build that right and do it right, somebody that walked through your property may not even ever know there's a house there. And then it's a lot easier to be off-grid and what have you as well. But I really think you, you need significantly comfortable conditions. Because now what you're, you're, you're suggesting is I'm going to go to this place and, you know, to ride out a pandemic, you may be there three months, six months, or more. So we need comfort, especially if the plan is taking the family, the dogs, et cetera, with you. Uh, next, you need, in my opinion, at that location, minimum six months stored food, water, and medicine. At that location, not you're going to bring it with you. At 90 days is okay, but six months is really what you would be shooting for. And you got to look at things in an entirely different way. What do we teach about food storage? It's paying off for many of you right now. Eat what you store and store what you eat. There's a limit to what you can do with a bug out location, especially if you use it as a vacation home and maybe you're there every three months. You're not going to eat enough to rotate enough to follow eat where you store and store where you eat very well. There's limits to how long you can store anything, including like meat in a freezer and what have you. You're going to really have to rely on, if you're okay with the carbs, the beans and rice, rice and beans type approach, or you're going to have to rely on a lot of you know, specially made long-term storables that we generally see as adjunctive when we store our food at home for bugging in. You know, this is where the mountain house and providing pantry and what have you kicks in, the number 10 cans of pork chops and things like that, because those things are stable for 25 years. And, you know, dry beans, dry rice, uh, et cetera, stored in five-gallon bucks with O2 absorbers, which basically a big hand warmer is a O2 absorber, that type of thing can store for as long as you're going to live. But then you need to have ways to prepare them, ways to make them taste good, etc. Or you need to really think about the ability to produce a lot. Uh, so next, I'm going to say you really want to have either a paid-for location or really easy-to-cover payments. You don't want two giant mortgages in a situation like this. Now, I do think that we're, we're learning some things about how this situation would be handled. The banks immediately went, oh, diddly hell. And I want to say a word started with an F there to be more accurate, right? Oh, F. 
if we don't do something about this, we're screwed. It, I mean, it's the old thing that if if I owe you $100, I have a problem. But if I owe you $10 million, you have a problem. All right? So when you have tens of millions of people that all owe you hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're talking about billions of trillions of dollars of real estate, and they can't afford to foreclose on everybody. So what they do? Uh, well, you know, various different versions of we'll defer your mortgage. You can't bet on that always happening, but, I mean, the, the funny thing about that is, I talked to John Pugliano when this all started before any inkling that that was going to happen came out, and I said, well, I think what they're going to do is do mortgage deferrals. He said that's exactly what they're going to do. Like, both of us just knew they would do that because it was the obvious answer. But you can't bet on it. You absolutely cannot bet on it. And I'm getting different versions of this coming in from different people. Okay? I'm getting different versions from different people of what they're being able to get. Some are saying, well, I got three months, and no interest accrues during those three months, and they just tack it on the end of my mortgage. Some people are saying, I'm getting a deferral, but they're going to want a balloon payment at the end of it. I don't know how you're going to make that payment. If you can't make the payment for three months, I don't know how in the fourth month you're going to make four months' worth of payments. I think that's dangerous, and I don't know that I would take that deal. Though it might just keep you in your home a little longer if you had to figure out what to do about it, but you're in a bad situation at that point. Many of those banks may end up doing a deferral as well. Some of the banks are doing it without even being asked. One person emailed me and told me they got a one-year deferral with no interest penalties whatsoever. All they have to do is pay for their insurance, their hazard insurance, and their property taxes. And for a year, their principal and interest is just not there. And they just got tacked on at the end, and they didn't even have to prove hardship. So I think if we're talking about a much worse situation, this is a template for what the banks would do because they don't have an alternative. But you can't make that plan because remember what we always plan for, other things to go wrong and nothing to go wrong. Or only something that goes wrong and only hits you, like losing a job. So you don't want two giant payments. So we want to either rapidly pay off that second home, that second home to produce some sort of an income for us, Or we want it to be something that it's like, I, you know, if I had to, I'd go to my savings and I could pay for that thing for two years. Because if you got down to it at that point and you really were safer there and you're going to lose something, you probably let your main home go. And then try to work it out if you can. And, and last, I, I think that the other thing that you really want to have in a place like this is rapid turn up of food production. Some sort of plan, some sort of thing in place that you can show up and in 30 days you're producing some of your own food. And you know what I'm going to tell you does that is hydroponics. Hydroponics, microgreens, indoor baby greens, uh, seed starting systems, all that stuff allows you to quickly get into production and it allows you to do it no matter when you have to go there. This hit so that most of us are sitting in like prime garden season while it's going on. If you are stuck home because you, you're, you, you've lost your job or you're working from home and you like to do homesteading stuff and you like to plant and grow food, it couldn't have hit at a more appropriate time seasonally. It's, it, I don't mean to make light of it. It's never a great time in your life for this to happen. But as far as from that standpoint, yeah. What if this hit in November, like right around Thanksgiving, just before Christmas? Or if it hit in like where it did in China? You know, right at the end of December, going into January and February, and you bugged out 
up into the mountains, and the day after you get there, there's 14 inches of snow on the ground and ice in the trees. And you're ch- I'm going to grow my own food. Good luck with that. And you know, if it's that late in the season, even things like hunting are not as opportune, even if you're going to be willing to cheat or even if you're somewhere where some things can be shot that time of year legally. It's just the, the, the hunting is not good in January. Right? And the foraging's not good in January. So we want to rely on some natural resources, but we can't rely on the timing to work out. So things like, you know, a greenhouse in place, a grow room in place, um, lights, etc. You, if you've built a great hydro system and you're going to rely on a bug out location for this, you need to pretty much build another one. Or you at least need to have a, pro- a plan for what you're breaking down and taking with you and have some resources on site there. Good news is something like Master Blend. You can buy a kit of that and have it at your location. You can have a bunch of Rubbermaid tubs that you basically carry all your shit you are taking with, and when you get there, you cut some holes on the top and plant. Or you can have Rubbermaid tubs that you're doing crab key like I do that you use to carry other shit, and when you get there, you empty them out and grow stuff. Like that, I don't know another way to turn food production up from a standpoint of at least leafy green vegetables in 25 to 30 days. I don't know if I knew another way to do it, I'd say. And you can, I guess, you can do it with soil gardening, with artificial lights and all. But hydro just works better, costs less, and is easier to do. You can do it with aquaponics, but you can't get your aquaponics system running that fast. And you damn sure can't leave an aquaponic system with no one to touch it for 60 days, 90 days, and have it already ready to go. I guess you can, but boy, are you taking a risk. You better have a redundancy of a redundancy of a redundancy for your pumps. Because that power goes off for one day without redundancy while you're not there to do something about it. And when you show up, you're going to find a steaming, stinking pile of dead fish. I mean, a much better solution would be something like a big pond that has fish in it, like a catfish pond with artificial with a with a deer feeder throwing fish pellets in the in the pond. If you can do that, you've got some. It also attracts two-legged rats, so you got to think about how you secure it. But those are the things I think you need: low population density, significant natural resource, built-in security with enhancements, good neighbors, comfortable conditions, six months of stored food, water, and medicine, paid for or easy to cover payments, and rapid turnover of food production. Now, a bunch of stuff's not on there. Like, if you don't have a generator, I don't know what to tell you. Now, so is your plan to take your generator or have a generator or both? Two is one, one is none, three is for me, four is more, five keeps you alive, six is the kicks, seven is heaven, eight is great, nine is ten, nine is fine, ten, well, if you go that far, I guess you're, you're going to make it no matter what. I don't have a rhyme for you. Right, but two is one, one is none. So if we have a generator there, plus we have a generator we're taking, but we got to think about this, because let's talk about the other side. And the first thing about the other side, the devil's advocate side of this, if it's a viable solution, and if none of this can't, is such that it can't be overcome, but it also helps you make a decision, is this right for me? Number one, how much can you really take with you? I mean, how much can you, most people don't have any idea the limitation that they really have. Even if you have two pickup trucks and a trailer, you throw in a couple dogs, a couple cats, and some stuff like that that you got to take with you. I mean, so I mean that's my next thing. What about pets and livestock? If I bug out, I am not leaving my cats and dogs behind. That's five animals right there that I got to have provisions for. 
not just space where I got to have a place for them and I got to have a place for their stuff because I got to be able to feed them for four, six months if I'm bugging out like this. But I also have livestock. What about your livestock? My livestock is a valuable resource to me. I'm just not sure I can effectively bug out with 22 ducks and three chickens. I damn sure want to. But what would probably happen is a selective culling, and I would only take some of them. That way there's less to feed. I can make more as long as I take some drakes, so I don't want to cull my drakes. So I might do something like cull all but six ducks and two drakes if I can make that work. I would have to have pre-planned transportation allotment for them. And by the way, if you have to bug out in the middle of the summer and you do that wrong with ducks, you arrive with ducks that are dead or soon will be. A friend of mine tried to bring some ducks here. I really appreciated it back when I needed more and more ducks when I was doing commercial. And as soon as he got here, I looked at, the, the, looked at them and I said, they'll all be dead by tomorrow. He didn't believe me, and all but one of them were dead by the next day. Because they didn't get enough water during that transportation. You may not have time to do it. I mean, it is something that really requires forethought about your pets and your livestock. Next is, if you're going to do this, the only way that it makes sense is to go before you need to go. If we're talking about a pandemic, and we're talking about something worse than COVID, and you wait till it's everywhere where you're at, If you think there's restrictions now in place about freedom of movement, lockdowns, etc., imagine that scenario, something with a 15% death rate that kills a little quicker. Something that flattening the curve is a joke. You think you're in quarantine right You're not in quarantine right now. The fact that you can go to the grocery store means you're not in quarantine. Quarantine means you do not leave. The people in quarantine... Most of them are in a self-directed quarantine. They have tested positive for COVID, but they don't need to be in a hospital. That's who's in quarantine. You are in restricted movement. And even where you have Governor Meemaw up in uh, Michigan, Gretchen, whatever the hell her name is, that needs to be recalled if you people in Michigan have any balls at all, that bitch will be recalled and kicked out of that governor's mansion quick for her stupidity. And it's not just about the lockdowns. It's a stupid shit like this. If you are a Michigan uh, resident and you have like a hunting cabin and you want to do what you're, we're talking about right now and bug out, it is illegal for you to go from your house to your other house in Michigan right now. Now, if you are from Wisconsin and you have a house in Michigan, it's totally okay for you to come from Wisconsin and go to your other house in Michigan. If you are in Michigan right now and you go to Walmart and you would like to pick up some fertilizer for your garden while you're at Walmart buying your toilet paper and, and milk and bread, you cannot buy the fertilizer because that side of the stores is, is roped off because it's considered not essential, even though everybody's already in that store and you're pushing more people into a smaller area and increasing, not reducing the chance of spread. That's how stupid she is. She is stupid. That woman is dumber than a fence post, and if you people don't ride her out of town on a rail, something is wrong, very, very wrong with Michiganders. I'll say it. Some other people need to go, too. That... that Governor of Connecticut needs to go into the water outside the state, like out into the ocean, on like a small, you know, John boat pushed out way at sea. And if managed to make it back, you do. And if you don't, I hope the sharks had fun with you. I mean, some of the stupid Virginia's governor needs to go. 
Now, but look at what they're doing, and just ask yourself, what would even, you know, governors with a modicum of common sense, I have to say, Governor Abbott here in Texas, I'm not a fan of any politician, but boy, it's it's been done with restraint and some common sense. Mayor of uh, Austin, not a lot of brains, but, you know, tempered by the overall policy within the state. What happens to freedom of movement if it's twice as bad as this? Three times. Four times. Four times isn't even a stretch, guys. So you have to be prepared to go before you need to go, or all of this is moot. You could have the best place set up. Everything I said and more. The ability to go there, take the keys, throw them in the drawer, pop open a bottle of freaking good bourbon, pour yourself a drink now that you made your long drive, screw it, we'll unload in the morning, take the dog for a walk, shoot a squirrel out of the tree, roast it on a fire with a stick, and enjoy your first night of freedom in your bug-out location. It could be that good, and if you're not willing to cut bait when you need to cut bait, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're either going to get stopped or sick before you get there. So unless you're willing to self-direct and say, this is bad enough, and I've always said that about bug-out locations. Bug-out locations are for you to go to before everybody else realizes there really is a real problem. And you need to think about things like, do I let family come? What kind of provisions do I make for that? We had an RV in Arkansas, and I remember we I talked about this with one of my family members. And he said, well, I, I think we would come up and stay with y'all. Well, number one, you better bring your own shit to sustain yourself. Number two, if it's something like a like a real dangerous pandemic, once you get there, you ain't leaving. And three, all of y'all are sleeping in the RV and you ain't coming nowhere near us until nobody's sick for a week and a half. He didn't seem to like that. I said, and I'm being generous. I'm not even sure that would happen. So if there is any family, any, any cohorts that are going to come, what does that look like? That needs to be understood. Um, what about security of your primary location? One reason I wouldn't want to leave here is I have so much here. It would be easier for me at this level of a threat, even if things got a lot worse than they are, to just you know tell my son, I'm sorry, can't take care of the kids for you. You're going to have to figure something out. If I really got to a point where I was really afraid for my health and Dorothy's health, you're just going to have to do something. I don't know what. We could just stay here for a couple, three months without even leaving the place and not letting anybody in, not ordering nothing. I'm good. I mean, 60 days from now, I might have to put an order in with the feed store for some more duck food. You know, the, the but I can feed the ducks and the fish with only 50% coming from outside sources. I could do some things right now and up production for the ducks really, really fast. So, I mean, it just is easier to stay here, but I don't want to lose this. You know, if I left here, grass starts, it becomes obvious. I do have neighbors that are looking out, but I mean, there is a point where things are that bad. You're, you're, you're leaving behind, whatever you're leaving behind, you may never see again. You may not be able to pay for it. Because my next thing is, what about your income, your job, etc.? You know, there's a lot of people right now that they would just go. Because they're either working from home or they're laid off. 
Okay? Well, if you're working from home or you're laid off, well, it doesn't matter. You either have income coming in or you don't, it, but it doesn't matter. My son and my daughter-in-law are both considered essential employees. They have to keep working, and if they don't, they're not getting any money from unemployment because they've quit. So you have to be in a position where either your income is independent or you're willing to sacrifice it if you have to for your long-term safety. Bugging out is kind of sexy. It's in ev almost every prepper fiction book involves the story of a bug out. It's cool to have a second property. It's fun to even think about it if we don't really think about what it means to bug out. We'll just be up in the hills. It'll be great. A lot of people want to live that life anyway, so bugging out would be an excuse to go do it. But if you're not ready to do it before a crisis, you're not ready to do it during a crisis. So you either need to have such a savings built up You can basically take a year off from life and go there. Or you have to have an income that's somehow independent of your daily life. And and that, you know, that anchors back into something like the show we had yesterday, where we had Daniel on talking about developing e-courses and selling them. That's just one way of a hundred ways of doing it. But if you can earn your income, and that see, that can be remote working. I mean I think that that's going to be one of the biggest opportunities. There's going to be a lot of companies that are like, we need to move to a much more remote workforce. Once this, and How about once this is over, I think, because here's what a company's going to think. So if we do that now, we either get performance from an employee or we don't. This whole idea that we need to look at a person to make sure they're doing their job is just dumb. It's stupid. If the, if the employee we're paying 40 hours a week is really working 30 But he's so much more efficient at home that he does everything we want him to do. We don't really care. We pretend that we care, but we don't really care. We want the function that that person serves accomplished no matter how it happens. And we're willing to pay this much for it. But if we do that, and something like this happens again, we're better positioned as a company. Well, if you're that person, as long as you can get Internet access wherever you're going, whether it's through a dish on the roof or whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can run your life like a business from wherever you go. You can go to the moon, and if they had a good DSL connection on the moon, which they don't, but if they did, you could run your, your, your job from the moon. It would take, you know, what is it? I think it's something like six minutes. No, it's, I don't know what the time is from the moon by the speed of light, but, you know, it'll take a minute maybe for your shit to get down here and for your shit to get up there. But you're good. Well, that is great if you can do it. And if you can't, the entire concept of a bug-out location is totally different. Especially if you've just learned that you are essential. And you can't just, you know, you can't just leave and get unemployment. If you can, if you're sitting at home right now collecting an unemployment check, plus federal matching or federal funds in excess of the unemployment, odds are you could be sitting at your bug-out location collecting that same money. If you work from home, if you're working from home right now, you could be doing that at a bug out location. If every day you go out to a place and work because you are essential, well, 
that 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 ship doesn't float for you. So those are that's the other side. So here's the real lessons here that I take away from all this with this thought experiment. Number one, the best time to bug out would be if times are decent or really bad. And I, I talked about moving before you have to, so that's not what I mean when I'm saying like at that point. But it's easy to bug out. when uh, it, Right now would be a decent time to bug out. If it just made sense for you, if it was easy for you to do and you could just go to a lower population density right now, You can pretty much get anything that you really need. Life is pretty pretty normal outside of the fact that people aren't going to work and the economy sucks. And there's been a lot of moves to stabilize even that. Or if everything has gone to complete shit, then bugging out makes sense because it's the most likely way that you're going to stay alive. It's things that are a little bit worse, but not a lot worse than where we are right now. It would make it a little bit more complicated. Um, or things are. it's good to bug out when you're just doing it for a lifestyle reason or an individual reason. So when I say times are pretty good, I mean they're good for everybody but you. You have a bug out location that's paid for. You lose your job. You go to a financial individual oblivion. There is no pandemic. You have a paid-for bug out location, especially off-grid. You can live there for next to nothing. You go up there until you figure out what you want to do with your life. If you have road warrior shit, yeah, bug out. Get the hell away from, from the population centers. Something like now is actually kind of where you really, really, really have to be in the exact right position for it to make sense. There will also never be a perfect answer or a perfect solution. Most people in this audience that have practiced what we teach for all the years we've been teaching it, right now you actually have a lot of things about this that are actually an opportunity. And you're not hurting. You might be a little worried. You might be worried about the long-term financial implications on the, on the global economy, which I understand. And you might be worried, like, how long is this really going to last and how much do we really have? But if you practice what we teach... Right now, you're not worried about what you're eating for dinner tonight or next week. You're just not. But you're still like, man, I could have done this and I could have done that. And that's, that's good. Because as bad as this is, it could be worse. And I know they say it always could be worse. And that's, that's kind of relative. But this really could be worse. So the fact that this could be worse... And that we are kind of seeing an apex of it right now. And it, you know, we have hundreds of years of something called Farr's Law of Epidemics that tells us that the downhill side is going to be fairly symmetrical with the uphill side. My second wave. Okay, go worry about your second wave. Just climb up tall building and jump and just end it. If you're one of those people, we're going to be locked down for 24 months. But you might. <laughs> You might be locked down for 24 months. I'm not going to be. I don't really consider myself to be locked down right now to begin with. Anyway, my, my state is reopening before or at the end of the month. And I'm, I'm betting on the end of the month. And I may kind of stay in my mode for another couple, three weeks. Just out of a self-preservation standpoint. It's because it's easy to do. And I don't mind it. Like I said, when you, tell, you stay at your farm and you don't talk to people. I don't like most people and I love my farm, so okay. Can I go down the road here to the liquor store and get a bottle of vodka since we're running low on that make a martini tonight? Yeah. I'm good. 
I got it. I got this, man. I've been preparing for this my whole life. Let me get my AR next to me. I mean, really, like, but there is no perfect answer. As good as I have it, I've realized, boy, we should have done this, we should have done that. We this is the time, and thought experiments like bug-out locations are a good way to say, you know what, maybe that's not right for me, but what do I do? What would I do there that I should be doing here first? Because I think the first thing you should do, you should get your primary place you live to where you can get through something like this before you even think about a bug-out location. Otherwise, you're gonna. it's like starting two projects. They're both half-assed and not done. You finish one and you do another. Um, Bug-out locations are great, but they're not practical for everyone. Like I said, they're sexy. You know, Having a second property is great. I want one as much so I have a place to go fishing and hunting and shoot guns as I do to bug out to. At least I'm honest with myself about that. And I'm not tricking myself to do something stupid just so I can have what I want because I might need it. But they're just not right for everybody. They're really not. And as we've talked about before, in some instances, a good bug-out location would be a nice little small place that's already paid for, that's far enough away from population density to be a, a, away from all this, but it anything like what most, most people would think of as a bug-out location. But if you can't stock it well, you can't bank on the fact you're going to be able to gain provisions once you get there. It's, it's really not practical then. The current situation that we're in right now, for the most people, would have been best addressed with prior planning and preparation from mental, physical, resource, and financial preparedness. If you have your mind right going into this, you are taking care of yourself physically to the best of your ability. There are people that have things like you know chronic diseases or what have you that even if it's part of its lifestyle, you already did the damage. And you can do what you can to mitigate it, but you can't reverse it. There are people that are born with certain conditions, etc. But if you're living the best physical life you can under your circumstances, if you've prepared with at least two months worth of resources for you, your animals, your family, etc., and you have at least 60 days minimum, and that's not even that's before you go into like rating your retirement and shit like that. 60 days, I can pay the bills out of the basic savings account, and I'm good. And you really want to be 90 days. But if you had that set up, this is not that hard to get through. And it's something that everybody can do. See, not everybody can have a bug-out location. Everybody, in, I've said this, years I've said this, no one in America can look me straight in the eye and honestly say, if I fix my own shit and stop making excuses, it's impossible for me to have a 60-day readiness plan. It's a country, it's too easy to do it in. I know it's not easy now. And those of you that have found this show since this stuff has happened, I have not once lectured you or yelled at you. And my existing audience will tell you, I get up on the soapbox and I'm pretty hard on people. But right now is not the time. There's a huge segment into this country, unlike me, you didn't grow up sitting on the knee of an old man who told you the story of the ant and the grasshopper. You've, you've believed what you were told by the people in power, the people that you were over you in school, by your parents and by society, and now you're like, holy shit, that was all a lie. And I'm, you're trying to find the answers. I am not, that is like a fat guy at the gym. I am not mocking a fat guy at the gym. Because he's doing something. 
And you know what? When you're the fat guy at the gym, it sucks at first. And you look around you and all the people that are in shape, some of them used to be fat. They make it look easy because they're in maintenance mode. They're just like, hey, I just want to stay in the good shape that I'm in. And you're the fat guy or the fat gal at the gym. But anybody that puts that person down should be thrown out of the gym. They've taken that first step, and it's going to be hard. And that's where you're at now. Like, this is the worst time ever to realize, oh, shit, I should have a preparedness plan. But you know what? It might be the worst time, but it's also the best time. Because the best time is always now. At least you've got your head in the game, and you're going to be ready to do this as we come out the other side of this. But that, you know, for all the talk of a bug-out location, how cool they are, how sexy they are, and all the things they can do for you, that was not the best solution to this problem, with an exception. Again, if I was in New York, I would not live in a place like New York City unless I had a fallback location of some sort. Again, it might not look like your classic cabin in the woods, but something in a small town somewhere on the outskirts where I can, you know, I can't easily hit my neighbor's house with a rock. I would have to have that. If you gave me, an, let's say I didn't have a business like I do. Or let's say that some company came to me and said, Jack, we want to make you a media mogul. We want to put you at an income level of someone like a Sean Hannity. $50 million a year, I'll set my own shit up. Fine. I'll take it. Right? I mean, I have my price, guys. It, 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 it's, you know, it's not $100,000 or $500,000 a year, but $50 million a year, I think, is what, what Hannity makes. But if they said, well, we can do $50 million a year for you, but it's going to take a couple years to get there. Uh, well, here's what I need. And one thing would be I need enough additional income into whatever you're offering to have this place sitting over here all set up. I can do what you want me to do from there. And I'm only in Manhattan because that's your main thing. But if some shit goes wrong, part of my brand is I'm going there and working from there. And unless you'll set up that for me, no. Or there had to be so much money in it right away that it's an afterthought. If I was employed... Still, like I was back in the day, and there was a job opportunity I wanted to take, and they said it's in New York City. No. Well, listen to us. No. Well, here's how much money it is. Say more things like that. It's this much. It's, there's, I have my price. Okay, it's this. But part of that price would have to be I have to have the ability to have a fallback location, to live anywhere with the population density of New York City, and that predates anything about COVID, and it's not just about um, pandemics. It's about anything going wrong. Like the last place you want to be when things really get bad and out and sideways is somewhere with that kind of population density. And, and I hate it for you if you live there, but boy, I bet you're thinking about a bug out location now. I'll just be honest about that. And here's the thing. There will be a next one. Odds are it will have the same best answer as this one. The next one could be the next pandemic. It could be a next national level disaster or global level disaster. And it is the odds are, preponderance of the evidence that we have is a practical mental, physical resource and financial preparedness plan that lets you stay where you are will be the best answer. But guess what? There is no guarantee. There's no guarantee. The only guarantee we have is there will be another big disaster someday. The last one like this was 1920, 100 years ago, Spanish flu. The last one of a significant size would have been split between what it meant for the country in World War II if you had to go fight that war 
or you lost the main breadwinner in a home who went from having a good income to having a soldier's income and not being there to do things, uh, or the Great Depression. It's been a long time. I said this is the first time that most people alive today as adults have been tested. Even our old people that can kind of sort of remember the Great Depression and World War II, most of them were kids. There's very few even World War II veterans alive today. And very few of them are in the mode where they're responsible for things. You know, you're talking the average age, I think, of a World War II vet now is like 94, the ones that are left. So they know World War II, and they, they tend to sort of at least remember the Depression. But the people that were in charge, the people that were 25 to 45 during the Great Depression, you know, 99% of them are gone. And all the people walking around today that are in charge that are 25, 45, 55 years of age do not remember any time in history that looks anything like now as far as being tested. So it could be that all of us are dead before anything of this scale ever happens again. It could be that we're looking at something akin to the Great Recession or Depression when this is over. Or we could recover. I personally think we are going to recover dramatically quickly relative to what has occurred, but it will not be without consequences. I think there will be phenomenal opportunities in it as well for the opportunistic people. But no matter when, this will happen again. And it could be next year. It could be next month. And things tend to compile. There's a whole bunch of people out there right now going, really? Now? Because an outbreak, a major tornado outbreak just hit the Deep South over Easter Sunday. I hate it for them. I've heard from several. I heard from one. He was so grateful to this show because he was so well prepared and he ended up okay. And his parents ended up okay. But his parents are going to be without power for over a week. But all he did was take his gas that he had stored up in his generator and drive over his parents and set them up and show them how the generator works and the parents have all their stuff working because he was prepared. But how many people don't? How many people are like, really in the middle of a pandemic with resources stretched thin, this is what happens? A lot. So there will always be a next one. And the big lesson isn't go get a bug out location. The big lesson is have a practical, mental, physical, resource, and financial preparedness plan. And I wish it was easy to do right now. I wish it was as easy to do right now for you as it was six months ago. But you can get started right now because part of it is mental and physical. And you can do that no matter what. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, let's talk about how you can help support this show if you do enjoy it and if it's uh, benefited you over the years or the months or even very recently. One is to become a member. Uh, with this show, I have a membership program called Member Support Brigade. If you become a member, you give me $50 a year. That's the cost. In return, you get some stuff, some benefits, and some content, and some things you wouldn't get otherwise. But what you really get is discounts. And it's all the kind of stuff that you're probably buying anyway or will be buying anyway over a year. So you use those discounts. You add those discounts up at the end of the year. It's almost inconceivable that those discounts won't pay for your membership. But guess what? You can get the discount. You get the membership right now for half price. 25 bucks. The discount code is 25 bucks, two five bucks. Let's go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. The other way, painless way, do your online shopping through a little website, tspaz.com. It's just a 
sub-page on the main website. But you, the quick way to get there, tspaztspaz.com. You go there, start your shopping there, no matter what you order online, and there's a lot of that going on right now, but no matter what you do, you help support us just by going there first. Now, I also usually have things that I review for you. Today I'm doing something I don't normally do. I'm bringing back a product I had just 10 days ago for you. This is something that came to me from Nurse Amy of Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract Powder. This is seven really great mushrooms that have high anti-cancer properties. But the main reason she is on it and she put her husband on it is because of COVID. Now, there's nothing about this that has anything directly to do with COVID except Amy was looking for something that might mitigate the concept of a cytokine storm. Cytokine storm is basically where your immune system attacks itself, and it's what's happening to some of the people that are having really hard times or dying from COVID. Their immune system turns on itself. Well, she found these mushrooms, researched in an amazing, just awesome study that you can read. I have it, or you can download it in the article today. Um, used to prevent cytokine storm for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Now, I personally think that a lot of mushrooms, especially things like reishi and lion's mane and some other stuff that's in here, is good for you to be taken anyway. I've been looking for something like this for a long time. It's affordable. And um, this, an 8-ounce bag, is $44.99, $45. gives you 322 servings. That's 14 cents a day for me and my wife. Uh, No, it's 14 cents a day or 28 cents a day for my wife and I. And that bag will last the two of us 161 days. And I just think it's it's just a great product. And again, since it came from Nurse Amy, I, it saved me so much research. But even if you don't get this, I really recommend you check out the write-up today and you read this study. It's a fascinating study on mushrooms and their effect on cytokine storm and their anti-cancer properties as well. Anyway, this, this has um, reishi mushroom, cordyceps, turkey tail, mataki, Lion's Mane, Chaga, and Agricius. Uh, I mean, that's the big seven. That's why they chose that. It's nothing but mushroom. That's all it is, and it's 100 uh, milligrams of each in a quarter teaspoon. I just throw it in my coffee every morning. You don't taste it or anything like that, and it certainly can't help it. It might hurt. Love this stuff. Again, Sacred 7 Mushroom Extract. And they do a smaller bag if you want to just give it a try as well. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Again, this week we're doing for Song of the Day at the end of the show. Five songs you probably never heard by Jimmy Buffett. Uh, today's song is called Far Side of the World, and I've been playing a lot of his stuff that kind of evokes adventure. Because I do think that it's something we've lost in the modern age. That there's really no excuse for it. And, and a lot of Jimmy's music is about traveling all over the world. I know in, in one of my live albums, uh, he's getting ready to do the song, He Went to Paris, and he says, with the cheap-ass airfare we have today, there's no excuse for not everybody go to Paris. And I think that's from, like, the 70s. And if anything, it, it costs low. Right now, it'd be really cheap, wouldn't it? I know not that right now is not the time to travel, but it sure is the time to think about adventure and build adventure into your life. This song is called Far Side of the World. And it's about, while everything's going on with the, 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 the hullabaloo over here in, in the modern world, being in some remote, faraway place where you're just separated from it. But the bridge is, the people really aren't that different. No matter where you go in the world, the things that we love and care about and the way that we treat each other when we're being good to each other is the same. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
Ramadan is over, the new moon's shown her face. I'm halfway around the planet in a most unlikely place. Following my song line past bamboo shacks and shops. Behind a jitney packed like sardines with bananas piled on top. I ran away from politics, it's too bizarre at home. Way I flew, tuned in to blue, maybe Amsterdam or Rome. Waking by a stewardess with Spain somewhere below. On the threshold of adventure, God, I do love this job so. So while I make my move on the big board game, up and down that Spanish highway, some things remain. And not. I've written them like camels to some most peculiar spots. They run across the ocean through mountains and saloons. And the night out to the desert where I sit atop this dune. I was destined for this vantage point, though it's so far from the sea. I've lived it in the pages of Sussex to Paris. From Paris to Tunisia, Casablanca to Dakar. I was riding along before I flew through the wind and sand and stars. Burns a lasting memory And a string of tiny twinkling lights Adorn the sausage tree While the embers from the log fire They flicker, fly, and twirl Then drift off towards the cosmos From the far side of the world That's Christmas and my birthday And so to that extent Must I not the wise men Are circling my tent I teach them how to play guitar, they show me how to dance. We have rum from the Caribbean and Burgundy from France. New Year's Eve in Zanzibar with Babu and his boys. High up on the rooftop, you can relish all the noise. They're dancing on the table, people bouncing like gazelles. Ushered in with their red horns and bells.
comet's afternoon, six thousand miles away. It will still be there when I get through attending the soiree. There are jobs and chores and questions and plates I need to twirl. But tonight I'll take my chances on the far side of the world. Yes, that's the way it happened on the far side. 